we have forgotten that most of the work in the world is not paid. And it shouldn't be paid because it's love, <laughs> it's connection, it's celebration, it's art and community, it's theater, it's dance. And all of that just gets erased when you think that money and stuff is the point of life. T minus 10 seconds. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. Up next, I have a rewind episode where I will be sharing my interview with Vicki Robin. So Vicki Robin was on episode 39 of the podcast, and she is considered one of the foundations of the financial independence movement. She and the late Joe Dominguez wrote the very popular book, Your Money or Your Life. And it has been one of the most influential books. Um, most people, like if they're getting into the fire, the financial independence retire early movement, it's going to be a book people recommend that they read. Or there are just a lot of concepts that the movement, quote unquote, basically comes from this book. And so it was an honor to interview Vicki Robin back in the day. So this was episode 39. So this was like... <laughs> Uh, years ago, but it was such um, a great conversation because we really got a chance to talk about how they worked to create, like almost create this movement that was before their time. Like what we're talking about now, it's we people have been talking about this and why uh, she felt it was important to think about it in ways where it wasn't just about money. It was about life energy and figuring out your enough point. And so we also talk about the nine transformational steps that you can take within this book or from the book. And I'm really excited to replay this episode because I really do think it's a foundational message that everyone should hear, if not for the first time, but many times. So I hope you enjoy. Journey to Launch is supported by First Republic Bank. Who doesn't want the best of both worlds? Like being able to stay at a five-star resort, but pay two-star prices, or the dream I'm living now, working for myself and bringing an income to support my family. What if a bank could give you the best of both worlds too? With a secure banking app that allows you to bank from anywhere, anytime, and a dedicated personal banker when you need one-on-one -on -one service, First Republic is uniquely positioned to offer the best of both worlds. I love that I can reach out to my personal banker, Linda, if I have any questions and that I can quickly access all of my account information and pay bills through the app. With this combination of personal attention and convenience, it's no wonder that First Republic Bank has a client satisfaction rating two times the industry average. So whether you're starting on your financial journey or planning for your future, you can count on First Republic to be there for you every step of the way. Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. 
Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, journeyers, I am so excited and honored to have Vicki Robin on the podcast. I mean, Vicki, you are to me the foremother of the just financial independence awakening movement. And it's funny because I interviewed two people over the last couple of weeks who have reached financial independence, who are on their way, who are getting there. And they both cited the book, Your Money or Your Life as foundational resources for them. And you are the co-writer of the original book with Joe Dominguez. So I'm so excited that you're here talking to the journeyers listening and to talk about just like what this book is all about, this movement. And then, you know, the new book, the 2018 updated version is coming out by the time this episode comes out, it'll be out. So it's so much I want to talk to you about. So first, (laughs) welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. It is my pleasure, my total pleasure. Okay, so just going back just a little bit, Your Money or Your Life. I mean, it was one of the first books, I believe, that really captured the financial independence movement. It was almost not before its time, because when you were doing it, you were pushing for it to become like a movement. But can you just talk about that time period? I mean, your co-author, Joe Dominguez, who unfortunately isn't here anymore, his background and what he contributed to this book was amazing. Can you just talk about that background a bit? Sure. Yeah. Joe grew up in Spanish Harlem. His father had TB and it was back in the days of a TB ward. So his father wasn't home. His mother was Venezuelan, never learned English. So, you know, by the time he was five, he's the head of the household. And so this is a guy who basically grew up really early and became really clear about life really early. He had to. He was the only moneymaker in the family by the time he was seven. He was bagging groceries and carrying home for people. So here's Joe in Spanish Harlem. And he was actually tested at a genius level, but he was just going to the normal Harlem schools and somebody got him into Bronx High School of Science. And so when he was 12, he was asked sort of like that, what do you want to be when you grow up (laughs) question? And he had to write an essay. And he recalled that the essay he wrote, he said, I want to be financially independent by the time I'm 30. Where he got that, who knows? And this was back in the 50s? This is back in the 50s, right. 50s, okay. He was born in 1938, so he would have been basically, yeah, someplace in the 50s. Okay. Yeah. So I used to call him a genius of the ordinary. Some people are geniuses of mathematics or physics, etc. And Joe was a genius of looking at what is and seeing it without any of the filters of what ought to be or what other people have told him. That, that was his genius. So over time, he, he accidentally, he met a guy while he was traveling who turned out to be the son of a major banking house. And when Joe was needing a job someplace in his early 20s, the guy asked him to come and help out at the banking house. And so Joe just like applied his genius. And he also had studied mechanical engineering and he never graduated from college, but he applied the principles of mechanical engineering to the flow of money through the stock market. This is before there were any technical analysis tools. 
He was one of the originators of the analysis of the stock market based not on fundamentals like what the company is like and who's the leadership, but just based on the movement of stocks. This is the way he was. And when he worked on Wall Street, he said, I want to be out by the time I'm 30. He remembered his original dream. At first, he did some of his own trading and he lost more money than he gained. And he realized his ability to predict the market was skewed by his being in the game. So he never invested for himself and he worked for an investment banking firm and he wrote a weekly stock market letter and developed tools for technical analysis back when computers were an entire city block. He had to book Sunday night between four and six in the morning to run his program so he could write his weekly market letter. And by the time he was 30, he told his boss, I'm out of here. And they couldn't believe it. It's like, what are you doing? You're taking off. You're being written up. And he had to tell them his aspiration really was there's more to life than money. But he had to tell them that he was writing a book. <laughs> so then, oh, okay, fine. You're writing a book. Anyway, so that was Joe. And he had no desire to be a leader, a guru, a teacher, anything. But after about a decade, people would meet him and they would say, like, how is it that you don't have to work? So he started to think about what is it that I did? And the nine step program is not something that he followed. He just did what made sense to him. And later he distinguished, OK, well, the first thing I did was this. And then I did that. And then I did that. And that became the nine step program. And by then I'd met him and I had a small inheritance that I'd gotten from my grandmother. I mean, like $20,000. And I had parlayed that into basically being able to leave my job and going and traveling. He said, you could invest that and live on the interest income from that. At that point, treasury bonds, U.S. treasury bonds were up around 8%. And there were some other bonds that I could get at 9%. So basically, I invested my money at 9%. <laughs> and I was able to live on the interest income at an extraordinarily frugal rate. I mean, I lived on just over $100 a month for six years of my life. Mm -hmm. And so just to set the time frame, so Joe was able to retire by 30, I believe. Mm -hmm. He retired or became financially independent at 30. Right. And so at what point did you guys meet? And just soon after he became financially independent. About what time frame was this? Do you remember? Yeah, 1969. Okay, so it's like 1969. You two now are, did Joe know or did you know of anyone else that achieved that? No, I mean, it was an era when a lot of people were dropping out. That was the era. In part, we were able to do that. My generation was able to do that, to not go on and pursue a career right away because the job market was incredibly rich with opportunity. We were harvesting the opportunities that were built by the generation before us, the greatest generation, who were incredible savers. And it was the time of the building of the middle class. I actually started my life right before the rules of the game started changing. And it became more and more difficult to have that middle class ideal of ever onward and upward. But anyway, there were many people who were going back to the land, seeking spirituality. There were many, many people at that time, but nobody had done it systematically the way Joe had. Mm -hmm. Nobody had thought, done the forethought and, and actually put himself in a financial position where he could be free and stay free. Right. 
And so you guys met, you started traveling. It's the 60s. And then what happened? So as I understand by reading your background and doing some research on you guys, it's like you started meeting people, sharing kind of your story and people wanted to understand and learn more. So you started a series of workshops. Exactly. They started the workshops and we did it in part because we were meeting people who are running idealistic projects to help people think about the environmental consequences of their lifestyles or to be able to grow spiritually. We were meeting all these groups that were trying to provide service. And we thought, well, we could do this workshop that we've been explaining this to friends. We could do it as a fundraiser for these groups that we wanted to support, conferences that we wanted to support. And so that's what we did. We started doing these workshops as a fundraiser for different organizations we wanted to support. And eventually the workshops were so popular that we ran out of organizations that we could give the money to. (laughs) I created a foundation called the New Roadmap Foundation in 1984. We started teaching in like 1980. And the foundation was designed to take in money from giving our workshops and in an orderly way, giving the money away to projects we wanted to support. Over the next decade or two, we gave away a million dollars as proceeds from our teaching to 800 small groups in donations of anywhere from 2000 to maximum 10 that were trying to make the world a better place. So that was part of our fun. Part of the fun of it was we're doing this teaching and we're not benefiting personally what the benefit that we want to create because we're financially independent is for other people to wake up and to have better lives. So what were you teaching at these workshops? Were, was it the nine steps that you talk about in the book? It was exactly that, the nine-step program. And the way Joe taught it was the first part was the philosophical part. There was the, who are you? What are you up to in life? What are your uptightnesses? What we used to call uptightnesses. What are your barriers in your mind about money? I don't know if <laughs> your listeners will enjoy this, but he used to start the workshop. He'd go up to the edge of the stage and he'd look at some big dude in the front row and he'd say, excuse me, how big is yours? It's like, what? <laughs> Everybody starts tittering, you know, like he's like, he looks at the guy. He says like, how big is yours? And it's like, what? <laughs> Everybody's like, what's happening to us? And then he said, your paycheck. Isn't that the most personal thing you can ask a guy? How big is your paycheck? So right from the instant, he was trying to destabilize people's assumptions about money. So the first part of the workshop would be trying to penetrate those assumptions about money, about who I am, what is possible for my life. And then the second part was the nine-step program. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into more of the technical, like with the nine steps. And there's so many great concepts in this book that I definitely want to touch upon. So you and Joe, you're teaching these workshops. You're now implanting what you have learned, what you're living, and you're sharing it with other people across the nation. So you're traveling with these workshops and you're trying to teach as many people as possible. And then at some point in the early 90s, you then are, I think it's the early 90s from what I read, you guys were approached to turn it into a book, which became your money or your life. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. We first created a tape course an audio cassette course based on the live seminar and we added a workbook and we distributed that for about four or five years because the demand was greater than what we could actually physically personally do. And then after that, an agent read about us in a little magazine and she said, Oh my God, you have a book in here. So she contacted us to 
and she represented us. And we got a contract with Viking mm -hmm. to write Your Money or Your Life in 1990. Right. And what I want to talk about is the impact. So the impact of the first book, because it was a New York Times bestseller. You were on Oprah. Twice. Twice. Like, I mean, it, <laughs> you accomplished a lot in the early 90s. So can you just talk about that time period? Because I think talking about the impact that it had then will help lead us into the concepts and what was so transformational about it now. Yeah, it's really interesting because that was the beginning of the 90s. It was like another gilded age. It was the era of Clinton. It was counterintuitive that a book about frugality and saving money would be popular. But I think it was the appeal, the very practical appeal of the basic concepts in the book how relatable Joe and I were. <laughs> and of course, being on Oprah, seven weeks into somehow or another, they got us on Oprah. Well, they sent her a book and she actually read the book and she ordered books for her whole staff. And she said, this book, this is the best book on money. She actually, when we were on Oprah, she held that book up and she said, this is a great book. It will change your life. And of course, when Oprah does that, you know, she has many guests on, but when she looks at her audience in the eye and she said, this is it. So we, we did that show and the next Monday, it was a New York Times bestseller. The second time I was at Oprah in uh, 1994, two years later, they shipped something like 40,000 books out from the warehouse. In a way, Oprah is the kingmaker or the queenmaker. But the other thing was, is they, they sent me on a major book tour. Joe didn't want a tour at all, but I loved communicating with people. So on that book tour, I could not find anybody in any of my audiences who wasn't frugal. I did hundreds of media interviews. I couldn't find any interviewer who didn't at the end of the interview, either on the mic or off the mic, say, you know, I do this very thing. And I realized, wait a second. This is so deep in the American character. We've been sold a story that we are greedy people and unconscious consumers, and consumerism is basically all we want to do. But I find that Americans, they love the art of the deal, honestly. They love to get something for less. They love to brag about getting something for less. Americans are clever. We're can-do. We're do-it-yourself people. And the consumer culture is sort of trying to breed that out of us so that we try to solve our problems with products. We believe ourselves to be incapable. And so we have to buy this soap, this perfume, this whatever to make ourselves once again, marginally acceptable in the world. But the reality of the people I met everywhere was that they agreed with us. I said to audiences, I think I'm just making the world safe for frugality. I think We've got a frugal streak in us, and we're being told that we're greedy people, <laughs> but everybody's got this frugal streak that nobody's been reflecting back to them. So I think a lot of people just felt a big relief, like, okay, I don't have to keep up with the Joneses or the Smiths or the whoever's. I don't have to do that. Right. So you were connecting with a lot of people. A lot of people were getting the message and understanding it. So you had that impact. We should mention that Joe Dominguez, he passed away of cancer. Was that also in the middle of when the book was released? He was diagnosed a year after the book came out. Mm -hmm. And I think there's another piece in here, and it was part of my drive, which was, 
even before we were approached by that agent, I had gone to a conference. This was after we had been teaching for 10 years. And I went to a conference on this idea of sustainable development, this idea that our economic growth and the environmental integrity were on a collision course. And the United Nations has sponsored a research, a, like a multi-year research project about how are we going to solve this problem collectively? And there was this first conference in North America about it in 1989. And I listened to all the heads of the environmental organizations. I listened to all the people who've been on this commission and traveled the world. Every single one of them said, you know, what we found, what the problem is, is consumerism. It's the level and pattern of consumption in North America, which is being exported. This is the biggest problem on the planet. And I'm sitting in the back row and I'm thinking, you know, we've been teaching this for 10 years and we have talked to people who've done our program. And on average, their consumption goes down by 20 to 25 percent and they all pretty much are happier. And many of them don't even know what they used to spend the money on. So I had this feeling like this program that we've developed that, you know, these little people often the margin of society could solve the biggest problem on the planet. So for me, at the end of that conference, Noel Brown, who was the head of the United Nations Environment Program, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, in his gorgeous English, he said, this was 1989, this is the turnaround decade, we are going to turn this around. And I thought, okay, yeah. And so I wrote Your Money, Your Life out of that passion, that if we could get everybody woke <laughs> about frugality and financial sanity that we could actually solve this big problem. It's interesting. So it's almost like because you said before, when you were doing your workshops, when you were doing your interviews, you saw that this idea of frugality and awareness was inside of people. And it almost seems like the society and the upstream people that are pushing down the agendas and the corporations that are pushing on consumerism kind of snuff that down inside of us and make us want more. And there's a lot of money behind the advertising and just society that causes us to feel that way. So it almost seems like you were thinking you wanted to awaken, like it's in all of us, right? this need for freedom, this need that we can be simple beings. We don't need all the things that we think we need. It's in us. But sometimes we get bogged down by society, by the advertisers, by the corporations. And what you wanted to do was create that awakening in people to say, hey, you don't need that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we believed that waking enough people up was actually going to be the sort of spear in the heart of consumerism. We really thought we could do that, which uh, later I realized this thing is way bigger than what two little people with a book could do. But in the height of your money or life, we figured out that we researched all the audiences of all the magazines, People Magazine, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, blah, 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 all the audiences of Oprah and Good Morning America. And no, no, no. We added that all up and we said, we've reached half the country. Surely, <laughs> surely this is going to change everything. So when Joe died in the beginning of 1997, we were four years into this project and he had no desire for me to stop grieve. He's like, you stay with it. <laughs> you go, girl. And we'd been working with a team of people who were also very, very committed to getting this out. So I really worked for another four years to the year 2000, nonstop to spread the message. And by the year 2000, which was when Noel Brown told us in 1989 was 
by when we were going to turn this around, I looked at it, I thought, we haven't turned this around at all. And so I put this work aside and I started looking for other approaches to social change that could maybe make a difference. So for me, this has been social change, social innovation. This is my passion. Can we change conditions in this world so that the world works for everybody, not just for the precious few? Right. So it seems like you both had this goal and you took the baton. You were really pushing to make major changes and you didn't see that happening. And you also yourself were diagnosed with cancer, right? Was that part of the reason you also had to step back? Yes, exactly. It was seven years almost to the day after Joe died, I was diagnosed with cancer. And it turned out to be stage three colon cancer. And by then, not only was there the your money, your life spinning plate, but I had started several other initiatives. So I was really, really working hard. And there was something about that diagnosis that felt like a hall pass. It felt like, oh, now I get to take care of Vicky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, now I can bring all of those threads of myself that I put so far out into the world, I can bring them in because I might not have much life left. I've had more influence than any one human being has a right to have. I was not scared of dying, but I had a sense that there was more to me than what I had invested myself in for the last 15, 20, 25 years. There was more to me than that. And I wanted to find out what the more was before I lost my life entirely. So I really changed course at that time and really let go of the work, let go of the foundation that we'd started and just did the things I needed to do. (laughs) I painted, I sang in a choir, I still sing in the choir, but I started to develop those other aspects of my human self that we had promoted to other people. You get FI so you can be a full range human, but I was on such a mission that I felt like God, when do I get to be financially independent? When do I get to sleep? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was a big lesson for me, that missionary consciousness that had descended upon me in 89, that needed to lighten up. And and so I went through a big change at that time. Right. I mean, if we kind of just like skip forward, that kind of brings you to now this new day and age, right? There's a new crop of financially independent (laughs) (laughs) folks out there. The time is different. There's the internet. There's like, you know, so many modes of dispersing information now. And so what led you to now come back and say, you know what, this world needs an updated version of your money or your life? Wow. What a great question. I mean, it seems like an obvious question, but I haven't been asked that yet. So here's the answer. I didn't know that there was this big internet community around financial independence. I had no idea. It was after I took on to do the update that somebody told me that there was this Reddit thing that I had never heard of and that there was a financial (laughs) independence community on there. Hundreds of thousands of people. What? Of course, like I Google Joe's name on there to see what they're saying. And, you know, I mean, there's a big discussion out there about this. And I had no idea. The second reason was that I'd met a whole bunch of millennials who were bright-eyed, idealistic. They were, they were like me at that age. But they were taking on levels of debt. I was pretty sure that they would not be able to flatten in their lifetime. And I started finding out how many people have college debt, that the whole story that worked for the boomers, that the boomers have marketed to their children 
trying to do the best by their children is something's wrong here because it's becoming a failed story. And I realized, look, the banks, they did the subprime mortgages. They've gone around and found pockets of potential debt so that they can harvest more money. And they'd found our students. They found our young people. They were harvesting money from our youth. And that's like exactly the wrong way for society to run. We're supposed to like invest in our youth. That's what we do. This image I had in my mind of these old bankers sucking money out of the young people. It was so terrible that I thought, I wonder if I could update your money, your life and make it relevant to younger people so that they would have access to this teaching. And that's really what inspired me to do it. There was also another part of it too, which is that the focus of the original book, it was sort of laser focused on you're going to get financially independent as fast as possible because this is what Joe did. And in the intervening years, I saw that everybody who read the book and actually used any of the tools had an insight about their lives, had some benefit. And very few of them became financially independent. Very few of them did the whole thing. But everybody got something because the set of tools in this book helped to liberate your mind and help to get out of debt and help to do many tasks in your financial life that provide you successive levels of liberation. And so I started to see that I wanted to communicate that. It's not like all or nothing. It's not like you're a good person if you get to FI by the time you're 30 and you're a failed person if you don't do that. It's that every one of us can engage in the self-liberation and every step of self-liberation, not only do you save money, but there's some sense of yourself like, I'm bigger than this story. I'm more powerful than this story. I'm being fed a story and it's not my story. I can take it on, but I can also take it off. It's like a coat. It's not my skin. It's a coat and I can change clothes. And so I wanted to communicate that, that there are levels of financial independence. And so being out of debt, I mean, just that is a sense of freedom. And, you know, maybe having a bank account where you, they say that if they had a $400 emergency, they would have to borrow money. Have a bank account where you could write out stuff. It's more and more, it's like the world cannot pull the rug out from under me. I'm going to make my rug. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that is what I wanted to encourage. And the other thing I wanted to encourage is something that we didn't emphasize, but it was really true for us. And it's very true now which is our relationships are a form of currency that actually the dominant consumer society flourishes by us feeling very alone. And so we're trying to solve emotional needs with products. Basically, the consumer culture prospers as relationships break apart, like a divorce. Now suddenly we need two refrigerators, two washing machines, you know, Every time you can break a human bond, you can sell a product. And what I've discovered is that my human bonds are actually like currency. It's a current of love. It's a current of connection. And it's completely ridiculous to think you have to buy your way through life. That if you increase your human skills, communication skills, your giving and receiving skills, your 
thinking of somebody's birthday skills, your volunteering in the community skills, all of these things is actually creating wealth. It's creating community wealth. And I wanted to start to lift up really this idea that money is not the only form of wealth. And as we do our money lives to invest also, to honor also, all the kinds of work we do that is unpaid, taking a walk with a friend. I mean, you're not renting a friend to take a walk with you. You just take a walk with a friend. And in that conversation, you might get more therapy than if you paid a therapist. I'm not saying you should not do therapy if you want therapy, but we have forgotten that most of the work in the world is not paid and it shouldn't be paid because it's love, <laughs> it's connection, it's celebration, it's art and community, it's theater, it's dance. And all of that just gets erased when you think that money and stuff is the point of life. So I wanted to also talk about community and belonging as important parts of our financial journey. Mm -hmm. You just said so many great nuggets. And I'm just trying to decide what to actually <laughs> first or what to point out first. So what I do like and what I think my audience will really, really appreciate is the fact that recognizing that this path to financial independence, whatever it may be and mean for the person listening and wanting to reach it, there are so many different levels. And there are different starting points, like you said, because, you know, there are people graduating with tons of debt from school or who have tons of debt. There are people who are maybe starting a little later in life, starting in their 40s or 50s, understanding what this is. There are mental roadblocks. There are all these things that happen where maybe initially, if you stumble upon the FI movement and you see it as a privileged community where it's a lot of people just who make a lot of money who are able to save and retire in four or five years, it could be a little discouraging. But if you break it down that, you know what, paying off that $10,000 debt, getting your debt down to zero, saving up the emergency fund, those are all notable and amazing steps to make. And you should be proud of those steps. So while you're still journeying forward, recognize and give yourself credit for that. Because it's not just the end goal. I would say that's why I called it Journey to Launch because it's about the journey itself. Right. Because even after you launch, there's still more journeys, right? Like there's still other things to do. But I love that you do talk about that in the book. And you say this in the book that there's turtles and hares in the book, right? Like there's a way in which you can go fast. And I see a lot of people, especially if you have a good income and you're very frugal, you can go very fast on the journey. Or if you have these other steps you need to do first, you take your time. It's slower. And neither one is right or wrong, but it's very important to at least acknowledge that and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Also, I say that the granddaddy, if you will, or the grandmother of financial independence is freeing your mind from the messages that the consumer culture feeds you, is being able to stand in front of a product, whether it's a new washing machine or a new pair of jeans, being able to stand there in front of a product and go like, they want me to buy this, you know, the gleam, the sort of polish on a dishwasher or whatever it is, they want me to buy this. And let me just stop here and think, is this product worth the life energy I invest in earning the money to buy it? And if I buy it on debt, you can just triple that price tag because by the time I finish paying it off, I'm going to pay three times that amount. So you just ask, 
yeah, I want it. Of course I want it because I've been programmed to want it. I want everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not bad. Wanting isn't bad. But having the ability to step aside in that whole consumer process and become conscious and say, is this worth it to me? Am I going to get out of this thing? The amount of pleasure and meaning and purpose that I deserve, given that I'm giving the sweat of my brow and the hours of my life to this product. One of the things I say is, I don't own things, things own me. Because everything I own is something I have to take care of and monitor and clean up after and stuff like that. So I think things have to earn their way into my life. Mm. That's why I say that consumer culture is like we think it's our skin, but it's really just a jacket and we can take it off. And so you are primary and the product is secondary. And once you start thinking, I'm primary, who I am, the things I think, the things I care about, the people I help out, the books I like reading, I am primary. This is my life. I am not a consumer. I'm a citizen. I'm a human. So that freedom to take yourself back, so much saving money and getting out of debt and developing your emergency fund comes out of that sense of dignity and autonomy, self-respect. Mm-hmm. For me, that's the first layer of financial independence is freeing your mind. Who knows what your free mind is going to do? Right. It's very powerful. And I want to get more into the technical things as well because it's so good and has so many good points. But one of the questions that you ask people to ask themselves is what is enough? Because that will also help determine where you stop and you say, okay, do I really need this updated phone? Do I really need this updated car? And it's not to say that if you really, really want those things, you can't have it. But like you said, stepping back and asking, like, what is enough for you? Like, at what point does the happiness peak and start diminishing? And you talk about that a lot, saying that there are people making money and they're not more happy. Mm -hmm. You know, the more money they make, it doesn't make them happy. So can you just touch upon that? Sure. This idea of enough, I'm sort of talking about the consumer culture like it's sort of a monster in your closet that's going to eat you. But in a way, it is a monster in your closet that's eating you if you're having trouble managing your expenses. And so one of the ways it functions is this idea of more is better. We all think that if I have one, two is better. You know, I have one pair of shoes, two is certainly better. And two pairs of shoes, three would be better. And three pairs of four is better. And then four, five is better. We continually think that if something brought us pleasure initially, that if we had more of that thing, we would get more pleasure. We think of it as linear. But when you think about it, your first pair of shoes, if you have no shoes, that's like ecstasy. And then the second pair of shoes, oh my God, I have two pairs. But you get out to your sixth or eighth or 10th pair of shoes, and it really is not making the difference that that first, second, or third pair made. You have to observe that there's a diminishing return of repeat consumption of things that you already have. And as a matter of fact, when you get out to your 16th pair of shoes, it actually devalues the other 15. The 16th, everything sort of like, oh, those are just shoes and I can't find anything to wear on my feet. I guess I need a new pair of shoes. It is that experience that drives you to thinking, oh, I feel a little bored this afternoon or it's been a tough week. Think I'll go and buy a pair of shoes. I know that's going to work because it worked back in first, second, and third pair of shoes. 
I'm just using pair of shoes as an example. It could be anything. Or it's like you're living in your parents' house and then you get your first apartment. And that is like total ecstasy. You have your own place. And then you think, ah, this is dumb, really. You know, it's like a studio apartment. I think I need a two-bedroom apartment. I can have a bedroom and I can have an office. And so you get your two-bedroom apartment, spend twice as much money. And it really is actually that spaciousness makes a difference. If you keep looking for happiness in more square footage of house that you own, there's a certain point at which the house is just going to become another site of consumption. Oh, my God, you know, I have to like redo the floor and have to do this and have to hire a handyman. And oh, my God, the sink is, isn't working. And now the dishwasher isn't working. But you still have that. I remember when I got my first apartment. So maybe if I get a bigger house or a house in a different neighborhood, then I'll be happy. So we right. actually do not observe the point of diminishing returns for any form of consumption. So that's what we call your enough point is when you have everything you want and need, but nothing in excess. When you have all the shoes you could possibly want. Now that doesn't mean when pairs one, two, and three wear out, you shouldn't replace them. Enough is not a static thing. Enough is a sense that you have where you're able to look at the set of things you have that serve you. And I'm sitting here looking around my office and I think I have to throw out half the things in here, right? (laughs) Because it's definitely too much. So it's being able to not look at the product, like the shiny product or the cute pair of shoes or the bow or the heel or the studs or the fringe or whatever, not look at those things, but look inside yourself and say, is this really going to add to my pleasure and satisfaction in life? And the idea of this dark consumer culture that's in your closet, (laughs) the idea of it is to convince you that more is always better and that enough, the idea of enough is deprivation. So what we're trying to do I can't stop it enough. I mean, just enough. Like it feels like a ceiling that's like oppressive ceiling that comes down upon you. You think of enough as like everything I want and need, everything. If I like cut flowers, I get cut flowers. If I want to live in a 2000 square foot home, that's what I want. That's what's going to make me happy. You don't prejudge it, but you develop this discernment about your actual satisfaction with the things that you have. And, you know, it's like one of the things I talk about is that one of the ways that you can actually save a lot of money is to be grateful for what you have. You just walk around your house and go like, oh, my God, that comforter. And, oh, my God, that plant. And you just walk around in gratitude. It's like you're not going to be able to buy anything because everything you have is so precious. So if you're like way beyond your enough point and you are swimming in clutter it would just a process of gratitude for what you have is a good way to start attracting yourself back to enough. And we have a phrase in your money, your life. We say no shame, no blame, because this is a process of becoming aware. Fundamentally, your stupidity and insanity, <laughs> <You know? laughs> mm-hmm. like, because we're all that way. We all unconscious. And so if you add guilt to be awareness You're never going to want to be aware. So you say, no shame, no blame. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was. But right now in my life, that doesn't work for me anymore. And that's okay. Don't beat yourself up over a past decision. You can move forward. Yeah. And it just have it be a funny story. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned, which was in the original book, and I think it's really what awakened a lot of people to understand what was really going on was this concept of your life energy and calculating that. Yeah. And I really want to touch upon that because I think it's such a powerful exercise for anyone to do. And it helps with this enough question. It helps with, you know what? I enjoy going out to eat. And so spending that whatever about $100, $60, on a meal is worth it to me. You have a method in which you are asking people to figure out what that's worth via life energy. Right. And I want to talk about that. How do you figure out a life energy of something? And what is it? Right. So basically, it, we start with what is money. And just like I was saying, like the car or the washing machine or the new pair of shoes, that the question is, what is that out there that you're attracted to? And turning that around and going like, what does it mean to me? So money is, you know, there's never enough. Somebody else is controlling it. There's so many ideas about this thing that somebody else is controlling and you have to invest yourself in getting some of that. You just have to keep working hard or working a second job or whatever. But it's sort of like a game of musical chairs where you don't have any authority over how many chairs there are. I don't know. Do people still play musical chairs? <laughs> I'm so old. But anyway, <laughs> I'm back in the age when people play piano in order to entertain themselves at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so what we say money is, is money is something that you choose to trade the hours of your life for. You give the money in your wallet value because you invested your hours in putting it there. It's not something that's uncontrollable that somebody else gives you or doesn't give you. It's like you're investing yourself in getting that. And so then once you see that, whatever else money is, it's not fame, it's not power, it's not, it has those qualities, but what it really is concretely is something that you've traded your hours for. Then you ask, well, how good a trade is that? And so you say, okay, well, I make $20 an hour. But then you compute, okay, I'm not just working eight hours a day because I've got two hours a day on either side of that. That's my commute time. So I've got to actually say, no, it's not a 40-hour work week. It's like an extra two hours a day commute time. So you have to add that in. And every hour that you add in to hours spent related to my job actually reduces your real hourly wage. You see that? Because mm-hmm. I had to spend 10 hours to get that money, not eight. Looked like eight, but it's 10. And then you start to take a look at also what are the expenses, whether it's the commute expenses or the kind of clothes you have to wear for your job, whether it's blue collar, white, pink collar, white collar, whatever, your uniforms, you know, and sometimes a business suit is just a uniform. And so those are expenses, things you have to buy in order to be able to make that money. Really, you have to subtract that from your wage Mm -hmm. while you're adding the hours. And when you do this calculation, and I will say that I'm working with a man who has his own blog, Grant Spatier, I'm doing a platform for Your Money, Your Life. It's yourmoneyyourlife.com. And we have developed a calculator there that people can use to figure out their real hourly wage in a sort of general way. You can get down to further specifics. On average, when people do this calculation, they realize that their real hourly wage is about a quarter of their nominal wage. Mm -hmm. You're making $20 an hour. You're actually trading what they call disposable income. I don't know why you should dispose of it, you know? (laughs) 
But anyway, your disposable income is $5 an hour. Right. On your way to work, you get a latte and a muffin every day because you're busy and you didn't get up in time and stuff like that. And you go like, okay, I'm paid $5 for that. That's an hour of my work day. Do I think I'd like to get up another five minutes early and make my own coffee? Mm-hmm. You start to realize that economizing isn't deprivation. Economizing is saving your life. It's preservation. It's preservation of your life and your energy. Exactly. And so there is nothing in that book that has been more transformational, more applicable to everybody than this idea of the real hourly wage. People can do that calculation and they realize that they're going to spend three years of their lives for the new car that they're buying in order to drive back and forth to their job where your new car will sit in the parking lot with a whole bunch of shiny other new cars. Nobody has bragging rights, but you're spending three years on that. And we have no judgment. It's like if that SUV or whatever, that pickup truck or Lexus, is that's worth three hours, three years of your life, go ahead and buy it. Mm. If that's going to bring you three years of your life of happiness, pride, bragging rights, whatever it is that that car does for you, then that's a fine purchase. And just like defend that purchase to the max. But if you're getting nothing from it, then transportation and you had a car that would have lasted you another 10 years, just think about it. And I think it puts you in that position of awareness, like stepping back and saying, okay, I do want these things. Oh, I think I want these things. But when I calculate how much of my life energy to buy this? So a car, so a new car, it might take me three years of my life energy to do that. Buying this bag, it maybe take me six months worth of working to buy that of my life's energy. If you know that and you are confident and you say, you know what, but I still want it and it's worth it for my happiness, then like you said, it's fine. But a lot of people do not understand how it ties in in the calculation. So this is why it, I do think it, it is such a popular concept in the book So there's nine steps in the book. I mean, I could talk to you for hours (laughs) and I know we don't have that kind of time, but I do want to just touch upon, we don't have to go through the nine steps, but I did hear you say the most transformational steps and you could have changed your mind since then. That's fine. Were steps two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. Can we touch upon what steps two, three, and four are and why? Yeah. Yeah. I think those are the central transformative tools and the rest is based on that. And step two is calculating your real hourly wage, and then tracking every penny, or now it might be every dollar that comes into and goes out of your life. And why you're doing that is not like your financial planner told you you were a bad girl and you have to cinch up your belt and do this. You're doing it because you become curious about where's my life going? It's my life. Where is it going? And so you track your money. When we started this, Joe kept a little book in his pocket and I kept a little index card in my wallet and I wrote down everything and I slowed down the grocery line while I wrote down my expenses. Now, there's so many ways with apps and stuff that you can actually keep track of this. And right now I pay for almost everything with my debit card. And so the bank tracks for me and then I have the categories established. So it's really easy for me. So you track every penny you spend. And then that's the second step. The third step is you put those expenses once a month. At the end of the month, you look at those expenses and you create categories that fit your lifestyle and you sort your expenses out into categories. That's starting your process of discernment. Why we say you should do this and not just use a standard budget book categories is that 
we have this idea of your gazingas pin. You know, your gazingas pin is the thing you buy. You actually don't need. You have ten of them at home, but you just you're like just that's so attracted to it in the store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I have a gazingas pin thing around these Annie Chung noodle dishes because I got way too much of them in my <laughs> cupboard. Uh huh. Every time you see that, you think, "Oh, I like that." Anyway, you start to take a look at what's my pattern of spending. Because like in food, it's not just food, it's like restaurant food, it's farmer's market food, it's grocery store food, and it's candy machine food at work. You might have four categories around food. So that once you're assigning each expense to a category, you start to see the pattern of your spending. You start to see the things that are very basic spending, like your grocery store food you cook at home, and then the pizza you order in or whatever, you start to see what you're doing, you become aware of the pattern of your life or clothes. It may be that you have work clothes and you have the clothes you wear around the house. Or you might, like with that earlier example, you might have a category called shoes. Like you just really want to see what am I doing on the shoe thing? And so you start to develop these categories, beauty products. You might have bad skin and you actually have $100 a month habit of beauty products, trying to deal with the fact that you don't like your skin. When you start to do these categories, you start to see what's going on. So that's the third step is you sort your expenses out into categories that fit your lifestyle so that you can see the pattern of your spending, which is actually looking at the pattern of your thinking. Then you translate each of those totals of each category into hours of my life I invested to get this. So let's say we're at $5 an hour real hourly wage and you spend $100 on beauty products. That was 20 hours of your life. That gives you a sobering piece of information. (laughs) Step four then is you go through all of those categories, not in the dollars, but in the hours. And you ask three questions. First, Did this make me happy in proportion to the amount of hours I invested? Your beauty products could be like, absolutely, I would spend 40 hours of my life. I love those things. You know, the different blushers and the different this and the different that. You might like, or you might think, oh my God, I could really use those 20 hours because I'm doing my college degree at night. I could use 20 hours for study. So you start to just look at it. No shame, no blame. Was that worth it to me? Did it bring me 20 hours of happy? And then you ask the question about what's my purpose in life? What am I aiming toward? What gives my life meaning? And it could be being a great parent, or it could be that you have a dream of getting a college degree or an advanced degree in something because you want to be a lawyer or, you know, whatever it is, where are you aiming your life? Not just sort of like, the shorter term happiness, but the larger term satisfaction. And you say, okay, beauty products, you know, is that taking me where I want to go? Absolutely. I'm trying to be an actress and I'm trying to break into musical theater in New York. (laughs) I need those beauty products. I would spend twice the amount. Or you could say, no, that actually doesn't. I'm just saying, I'm using that as an example. I don't know why I picked that up. And then the third question is, if I were financially independent, if I didn't have to work, I didn't have to work for money. I worked for love or purpose or other reasons. What would that expense look like? Back to the beauty products, back to 20 hours for beauty products. You just guess and you say, I think that would be half 
if I actually wasn't trying to press people or get a job or stuff like that. So those are the three questions. That's step four. And when you ask those questions, you're not doing it with shoulds and oughts like, oh, I shouldn't spend this or I should spend it or, you know, there's nothing there other than awareness. So the next time you're at the store and your Gazingas pin is blusher, let's say, <laughs> you're at the blusher counter and you're about to buy the blusher and you go like, wait a second, I have 10 blushers at home and this isn't going to bring me happiness, satisfaction, purpose. This is just some program that's running off. So you stop buying those items, not because you're bad or you shouldn't, you just stop wasting your life energy. And so those three steps, you know, tracking your money, putting it in categories that fit your life so you can actually see what's going on. You can bring an unconscious process into consciousness and then asking those questions. That's what actually, I think when people do those things, that's why their expenses go down so rapidly. I agree with you. I think, again, this is really about awakening. And if you notice, like a lot of our conversation Yes, there's action, but it all stems from behavior and mindset and not feeling like deprivation. Right. So, you know, I was going to ask you, because I'm trying to compare it to, you had a great run with the first edition of Your Money or Your Life, and you reached a lot of people, you got on some major networks, and you really thought you were making a change, and you did. I mean, there are people today who haven't read the updated version, who were still reading the older version and said, this has impacted my life. But it didn't take off and it didn't do what you thought it could do. Now we're in a new age, the internet age. Like you said, there's this new crop of financial independent folks or aware people about finances talking about it. Do you feel that this time is different? Like this can work if it can catch fire quicker because of the internet age, because we're able to build community virtually. Now there's more support around this topic where maybe before you had to know someone in real life to feel connected and to feel supported on your journey. But now, even if no one in your real life gets it, even if everyone in your immediate circle are consumers and they're just looking at you like, I'm going to spend my money because I'm going to die soon. So I don't want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> you can go online and then you could connect with so many other people who are thinking like you or who are struggling to get out of that hold. And maybe then it stick. So do you think that will create that change and that difference? I think that would be great if it does. I mean, I, as I say, I was stunned to find out that there's this thing called FIRE, <laughs> you know, financial independence early. I had no idea. And I found by and large, the people in this community are aware, generous with their time and People love giving each other advice and cheering each other on. It's really quite wonderful. I have a different sense of what making a difference. You know, my life adding up to changing the world. Back then, as I say, I was sort of a missionary. And now I understand I am one of many people trying to create a healthy world, a world that will be better for our children. I'm just one of many people, and I trust this network. I trust the network of people who are tending our world toward the good. I will join the chorus, but I'm not the chorus leader. I don't have to see evidence in my lifetime. I don't have something that I call a benchmark of a number of people reached or anything. I just want to empower people to see their lives in a bigger context and with more po sense of possibility. 
I also think that we are further toward this questioning of consumerism, questioning of the dynamics of the capitalist system and whether it's going to work for everybody. I think that people are waking up that the bigger system is rigged, that not everybody is playing by the same rules, that there are people up there somewhere who are rewriting the rules so that those of us who are in the middle here are not advancing in the way that the middle class used to advance. And it's becoming harder and harder. The cost of rent is going up, minimum wage or average wage. We're starting to understand that they're skewed and questioning that. Now, I know that we have a very conservative Congress at the moment, so I don't think there's evidence of the shift, although I would say that the enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders back when shows that there's a lot of people who are questioning the big story. I think more people are willing to question their loyalty to the consumer culture because there's more people are realizing this thing is not designed for my happiness. This thing is designed to take money out of my wallet. So more and more people are waking up all by themselves to that there's something about this game that's off. And I am going to unhook from the game and reclaim my life, whatever that looks like. The FI approach, whether it's your money or life or whatever, is like a filtration system. Like you're in a pond and the pond is polluted and this filters so that beyond the filtration system, your life flows in a much cleaner and clearer way. But I'm interested in like, why is the pond toxic? What's the input into this pond? And I'm interested in things that would actually make life better for people on this path. If we had healthcare for all, healthcare is a right. You don't have to have a corporate job in order to have access to a doctor. This is insane. I can't tell you the number of people who say my job is killing me, but I can't leave because I need the health care. So these are things that I would like to look at with this FI community is I think we need to advocate for some changes in policies that would be beneficial to ordinary people who are trying to crawl out of a financial hole. And I think health care for all is one of those things. And we just need to work for it and we should ask for it. And it makes sense. And everybody gets that we have one of the best healthcare systems on the planet. We have an industrial nation. We have the worst access to our system, even though we have the best system. We have to fix this. So these are some of the things that I'm thinking about now. I'm not thinking that we're going to stop consumerism. I'm thinking about how can we reshape some of these rules of the game so that people who want to go sane about money don't have to swim that far upstream, you know, that hard upstream to get there. Yeah. And part of that too is the student loan debt crisis and <laughs> the debt that people are saddled with and jobs that will never allow them to really pay that off and not being aware, like all this stuff is tied in. And, and, and I'm so glad you're mentioning the bigger picture because there are some things that are outside of our immediate control. There are some systematic things, especially for some people of color or people of color in general or people born in certain economic backgrounds. It's harder. And there is a difference between the privileged and the non-privileged. And I'm one to believe that even if you are not born privileged, you can fight and you can swim through that. But there are some people 
who do need an extra boost or help to be able to get to that step to at least be on a level playing field. Right. So I love that you talk about that and you acknowledge that because it's so important. We have a Facebook group currently. I'm encouraging people to sign up from the yourmoneylife.com community because we're building a really rich set of resources on that platform. But there is a Facebook community at the moment. And one of the guys from Australia said, you know, I've had free education and I've had free healthcare. I, it's like so easy for me to be FI. Most of the people I meet from European countries, they like, they're just perplexed at how upset we are about our payment system for sickness care. So we have to get that how it's stacked up in this country makes no sense unless you take a look at it's designed for corporate profits, not for health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not the doctor's fault. It's this payment system that we have set up. Yeah. And the student that I have a friend in Holland who went all the way through medical school, it was paid for. They recognized what they were getting out of it was a doctor. That's pretty valuable. <laughs> and if this person was willing to like bust butt until she was almost 30 to become a doctor, we should support her. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. You have to just see that the way it's set up in our society makes no sense unless you think that the whole thing, everything is designed for corporate profit. That's the only way it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not ragging on corporations. It's just one way to organize financing, growing things that could be very beneficial to us. I mean, it's not that the corporations are bad. It's like the rules of the game at the moment, the playing field is too tilted. The other thing I'm looking at is this question of, they call it universal basic income. Is there a way in which everybody in society should have a financial floor? One of the things that inspired me to do this update was discovering that everybody I knew from the person in their 80s, who I know has a lot of money, all the way down to these college students, they're all scared about their financial lives. Everybody's scared. They're scared that the rug is going to get pulled out from under them in some way. And when that rug is pulled, there's actually no floor. You know, you're going to fall. (laughs) Right. And that's not kind. It's not beneficial. There's no really good reason why we should render our society as indebted and scared. And so that's what I'm saying is like even from the richest person, everybody has this sense of instability. So I think we need to take a look at that and take a look at what are simple shifts in some of the policy things that can help out with this. It's a passion of mine. I have the luxury of thinking about these things because I've been financially independent for so many years. And it gives me the luxury of time and attention to really think about big things and invest myself in them. So let's take a look at what's poisoning the pond. Right, right. It's a look at the bigger picture and how we fit into it. Again, I could go on talking to you forever. This was amazing. And I know that my audience will really enjoy this. So everything we talked about, I'd link in the show notes where I can. And I just want to thank you. So where can people find out more about you if they are like, okay, I got to find out more about Vicky. What's going on with her? What's your website? Where can they reach you? Okay, so yourmoneyyourlife.com is the website for everything about your money, your life. I have a personal website. It's sort of like a brochure online, but if people want to read about things that I've done in my life and my bio and stuff like that, it's 
VickiRobin.com. Mm-hmm. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where you can find out more about me. Yeah. So those are the two resources. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Vicki. This was amazing. All right, journeyers. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Vicki Robin. Once again, let me know if you did enjoy it or you have a takeaway, you can screenshot this and then share it on your socials on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Send a message. I love hearing what you learned or what inspired you from the book. And most importantly, share this with a family member or friend. That's the best way to get people on the journey with you. You know, it's a lonely journey to do this alone. And I know I talk a lot about having community and virtual community is great, right? I love being able to talk to you. I love that you're able to find each other on social media. And I think that's the best way. If there's no one else in your life that gets it, you still can do this, right? Like you can still join Facebook groups and follow the hashtags and find the different people within this community that you connect with to keep you accountable. But there's nothing that can replace though, someone in your real life who's also on board or who's interested that you can share this with. In, in a non-judgmental, <laughs> condescending way. And the best way to do that is to send them information that you find inspiring and, you know, let them have their own conclusions. But I know for me, this was super helpful. When I started to kind of get into this, I used to send my husband episodes of other podcasts before I had a podcast and articles. And it was just nice knowing that someone in my real life understood the concept. So that way, when I told him, hey, <laughs> I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to reach financial independence and go on this movement. He was just like, oh, so that's what this is. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week. And by the way, so the month of August, if you've been like listening every week, has been rewinds for most of them. But I am planning to start back up in September and beyond with brand new episodes, with new interviews. I'm actually planning to do all solo episodes. I got some exciting updates and just things I want to share with you that I've been thinking about and working on and that will help you with your financial journey. So stay tuned and make sure you are following this podcast. So that means you won't miss an episode because you're following it on Apple Podcasts. You click that plus button on the top of the Apple Podcast screen, or you follow it wherever you're listening. It doesn't have to be Apple Podcasts, but the most important thing is that you are locked in so you don't miss an episode. All right, see you next week. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here. So show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, 
Keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.